Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke with Charles Eisenstein. Have you read his article yet? The Coronation? You'll love it. Charles is a public speaker, gift economy advocate, the author of several books, including The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, which is an adorable title, and Climate, A New Story. I particularly enjoyed that essay and I think you should have a little read of it if you've not. It takes a while, about 10,000 words, but it makes a lot of sense and helps you on a sort of emotional, political, economic sort of global level think about the impact of these odd times of corona virus uh if you ain't signed up to russellbrand.com do it if you're not watching my youtube channel do it you can see me and the missus making soap and stuff we're going to do more things like that she's got a book out the joy journal you should pre-order that on amazon don't worry that amazon is destroying the literal amazon with its well then are they using deforestation programs to make those boxes i'm sure they're not that would be too ironic wouldn't it in any event the book the joy journal is brilliant ideas for craft with your kids that bring out your joy as a parent but loads of those ideas you could just do even without kids in fact to be honest that'd be a lot easier uh, if you want to get in touch with me on social media, you can at Rusty Rockets on Twitter, at Russell Brand everywhere else, and use the hashtag under the skin if you want to talk to me about this podcast. Let's get into Charles Eisenstein now, though. He's going to blow your little socks off with his Yale educated mathematician, although he said himself he wouldn't call himself a mathematician, philosopher, although he said he wouldn't call himself that. He's more a pioneer, cosmonaut, explorer of what are known as alternative ideologies, but because of his academic, um, should we call it heritage? He, um, I would say, he does a bloody damn good job in those areas. Right, let me know what you think. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Charles Eisenstein, thank you so much for coming on Under the Skin. Yeah, my pleasure, as always. I really um, like the your recent article, The Coronation, has been passed around like a forlorn young Brazilian rent boy at the Copacabana in 1982. I keep getting it sent it from all directions. It's a fantastic piece of writing. It's incredibly thorough. Could you like, uh, well, for one thing, just sort of pracy for our listeners where you went with that coronation piece, although I reckon it was probably 10,000 words, was it? And uh, also sort of how you compiled it. Yeah, everyone's been saying that about the, you know, Brazilian boy metaphor for how it's spreading around that's what we use that's how we talk now in the world um <laughs> yeah the the uh the essay came out of confusion because when when the first when i when i first you know when it first came into the news the whole coronavirus thing my initial impulse was intense skepticism because i'm like this is the perfect vehicle to fulfill every checkbox on the totalitarian wish list and to take the, the regime of separation that I've seen unfolding over my entire life to a new extreme. Because like nothing that was happening in response to COVID-19 was actually new. 
the movement of life indoors, the movement of life online, just the general retreat of human beings from each other, the control response to everything. So it wasn't like this is um, some departure from normal, but it was rather an intensification of normal. And so I was like, I was like, whoa, this is not just some isolated thing. This is part of a larger agenda. That was my initial uh, response. But I'm like, okay, am I sure that this is hysteria and not, I mean, sometimes when the little boy cries wolf, there actually is a wolf. So yeah, the last time, weren't there? There was like there. There sadly for the boy, there was a wolf on the last. Occasion. There was a wolf, right? And this is one thing that's happening that that it's revealing how little trust there is, um, um, you know, from the public to the authorities. Thirty years ago, nobody would have questioned the official narrative, but now. Still, most people don't question it. Still, most people are complying with their instructions. But there's a sizable, this is, and this is what got me all confused because I went into all these different conspiracy theories or to be more charitable, alternative narratives. And each one appealed to a different part of my psyche. But do I want to believe something just because it appeals to my psyche? and validates that I've been right all along about this world? Or do I want to actually know what's true, even if it means letting go of my identity as being right? So I was like, maybe the mainstream narrative, the CDC, the WHO, the conventional virology, maybe they're right. Maybe they've been right all along. It's a matter of life and death. And what I came to in the end was I just don't know. Any story I want to tell myself about what's going on here has plenty of evidence that I can fit into that story. And I don't know, like this is, I don't want to get too abstract here, but um, the essay came from unknowing. And I kind of wish that uh, more people, whether in the mainstream or in the conspiracy world would embrace not knowing because our culture is built on arrogance it's built on whether you're looking at colonialism and imperialism or just the economic setup uh, the the um, rule of the few over the many it's all built on arrogance it's built on i think i know what's better for you than you do I think I know it's better for so-called developing nations than they do. And we're, we're going to impose our world, our reality on everyone else. And maybe this coronavirus is a pause where we get to say, hey, we don't have to go in the direction that we've been walking for generations now we're being shown what the future is if we keep going in the same direction. A future that Andrew Fauci um, enunciated yesterday when he said, handshakes are going to have to be a thing of the past. We should never shake hands again. 
And I'm like, is that the future? No handshakes, no hugs, no gatherings, all sacrificed at the altar of risk minimization. Is this just temporary or is this reflecting a value system that really needs to be questioned, that puts safety above everything else and prolonging life above living fully and and sees death as the ultimate catastrophe to be avoided at all costs, even if it means you stay indoors for the rest of your life. And then you go to your grave and on your epitaph it can say, he survived life. He made it. It's an obvious delusion. We're going to die. And our whole civilization is founded on death denial and our exception, abstraction from the circle of life. So this, you know, and I'm not sure how deeply this particular crisis is going to awaken us to these issues, but it's an opportunity uh, for a really deep inventory of our of ourselves and our, and our culture. There's so much I want to ask you about. I'll try and I'll try and do all of it. When you talked about sort of alternative narratives or conspiracy theories, what uh, I'd like to know firstly which which aspects of it do you find most um which which conspiracy theories did you find most attractive compelling or plausible uh, th th those are the ones because like, i'm sort of i'm somewhat in that world i hear about you know like people oh there were biochemical labs you, you know synergetic toxicity these kind of phrases about there's just so many you know pathogens etc um like I'm very, I'm interested in that aspect of your work. Uh, the thing that I really was um, fascinated by in your article was this sort of what we could read into, as you touched on then, uh, about our attitudes towards death, our denial of death, and therefore our denial of life, a kind of attitude towards a, a sort of a bizarre uh, attitude towards longevity as if we were a kind of a dairy product as opposed to human beings. And uh, and and also the sort of questions that you posed near the beginning of the article about w at what point is the sacrifice of solitude not worth it? And, and uh, so there's a few things in there. There's the death question. There's the there's the conspiracy question. And I'd like to add as well one of the things I've observed, and perhaps that's because I'm sitting this out in the UK, is a kind of I would say an obedience. You know, like I, whilst I recognise that um, the cynicism towards um, government and towards power has been sort of increasing over the last 20 years, I, I feel like, you know, when Boris Johnson, for example, was in an intensive care, uh, taken into intensive care, like a kind of, I felt a kind of a, a warping queasiness, a kind of an uncertainty. You know, Boris Johnson, prior to he uh, assuming power by a good many people would have been regarded as like you know the sort of exactly the type of figure we don't want in charge like a kind of old Etonian privileged elitist conservative capitalist somewhat like Trump a sort of a charismatic uh populist you know but now I I'm sensing a kind of a, a kind of a need to believe in authority yeah boy well there's a lot there obviously um just say something really quick about conspiracies. They, Bertrand Russell said something like, like this, that they don't leave enough room for ordinary human folly. When, when 
to to uh, postulate a conspiracy is to give those people a lot of credit for being able to manage chaos, for being able to get along with each other. Like, how are they able to be so coordinated and cooperate and coordinate their efforts so well when all the people I know who have done counsel training and nonviolent communication training and have all of this done all this spiritual work, even they can't get along. So how how is this bunch of psychopaths and narcissists supposed to to be that disciplined? Um, like that that strains credibility for me, and also that whole mindset of find the bad guy. Something is going wrong in society. Well, it must be being done to us by an external enemy, by something that's victimizing us. That is a comfortable place to be because it offers an answer. It offers an easy solution that doesn't really require looking at yourself, but that just simply finds an enemy and then you can use some form of violence or control to solve the problem. Very similar to the diagnosis of a virus. People are getting sick. Find an enemy. That's so comfortable. But what if what if there what if the virus is a symptom of some other uh, deeper illness, some deeper dysfunction? What if and there's whole theories of disease that are based on this terrain theory, which says Oh, I love fish that. Is, yeah, your fish is sick. Germ theory, isolate the fish. Terrain theory, clean the tank. Like we're living in a pretty dirty tank right now as a society. People talk about now so some of the conspiracy theories or alternative narratives are about 5G and how that is maybe weakening, you know, disrupting mitochondria or whatever, um, pollution. Um, and then there's the whole fear atmosphere that weakens immunity, makes people sick. I mean, fear, loneliness makes people sick. So here we have a society that is not healthy. This is the problem with wanting to go back to normal. And this is related to what you're saying about Boris Johnson. Like people, when they're thrust into uncertainty, at least what I often do is I cling desperately to the side of the swimming pool so that I don't have to take the plunge into the deep end. Like I want to go back to normal. But is normal what we even want to go back to when normal gave birth to the situation we have today? The general levels of ill health, the social isolation. Like this is not, social distancing was already underway for a long time as life has moved more and more online. So yeah, that's the question for me. Do we actually want to go back to normal? <clears throat> when this whole pandemic maybe could be seen, at least in part, as a symptom of normal being really dysfunctional. And that's, so yeah, like people go back to authority, go back to the comfort of what they know well, go back to the comfort of conventional medicine. Like one thing that's been wiped off the board in the dominant discourse is any holistic and alternative uh, modalities. In this country, like chiropractors, acupuncturists, energy healers, those are deemed non-essential. You are not allowed to go to your acupuncturist. 
You are not allowed to go to your yoga class. You're not allowed to go to your chiropractor from the from the mindset of conventional epidemiology. Of course not, because those things aren't really real. What's real is an enemy to fight a pathogen. And this is a life or death struggle. And I think that an initiation like this is asking us to question actually what's real. And it's not, you know, like holistic and alternative modalities are just some figment of our imagination. I mean, there's an entire enormous body of research that validates them. And so why? Okay, I'm, I've gone on long enough. But. No, you haven't. Uh, we've, I'd like you to fill as much time as I think you should keep talking till this whole thing passes. I, I was interested in what you said uh, also, Charles, about it being it could be regarded as an initiation. You kind of are inviting a, a somewhat mythic perspective of this situation. But to sort of um, almost to pan back for a second, I, I, I do you feel that... You know, you are like a Yale-educated uh, mathematician and philosopher, but because of the way that you've written and the way that you've spoken, you're regarded as kind of on the kind of new age end of the spectrum is what I've sort of picked up from talking to academics and just from feeling out how, you know, you know how these taxonomies yeah. work. Do you think that anybody who... Do you think that there is a kind of a, a doctrinaire approach to public conversation with regard to uh, you know, science, uh, philosophy, politics, and if you step outside of it, even if you entertain uh, alternative narratives, conspiracy theories, new age, holistic medicine, that you are kind of either exempted from the conversation, excluded from the conversation, or kind of sort of tainted, tarnished by entering into that debate by sort of the necessary self-sustenance of systems of dominance. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, if I mention certain things, then I won't be taken seriously. Like the serious conversation is defined as something that actually doesn't disturb the status quo very much. So the, the, and the status quo, it's like a itself is an organism that recognizes and excludes viruses, data points, information that will disrupt it. It has an immune system. So, yeah, there's a lot. One way I can buy a little bit of legitimacy is to beat up on the people even more new age than me. I can say, well, at least I'm not one of those soft-headed, hippie uh, boneheads, you know, who believe in UFO abductions. You know, I can make fun of them or I can make fun of the energy healers, you know, who don't even, da, da, da. and, and, and by, by bullying the weird kid in the class, I can be accepted by the popular kids. But I think by doing that, I'm, if, if I do that, I'm setting a precedent of that, that will end up uh, getting turned upon myself as well. When really what's more important to model uh, radical acceptance and humility, not to say that I'm just going to believe every theory that comes my way, but 
to understand that the version of reality that we've been given by our institutions, including the institution of science, is so narrow, so limiting, leaves a lot out. Almost anybody I talk to, not everybody though, but most people I talk to have had experiences, direct experiences in their lives that science says are impossible. I've had many of those experiences. People I know firsthand have had many of those experiences. So when we're telling, this, this applies not only to COVID-19, but to climate change or whatever else. When we tell people, do as you are told because science says so, and science is right, you're contradicting people's lived experience. So this is not a good strategy. We need to appeal to, and I'm not saying science is wrong either, just that the world it presents us is limited. And following, its, following the, the official version of reality, we as a society have reached a glass ceiling where we cannot solve the problems that face us today. And where, and so I, in the essay, I gave examples of these depression, suicide, opioid addiction, other addiction, autoimmunity, obesity, loneliness, anxiety. These are in epidemic, these are at epidemic levels right now. And there is no enemy to fight. We can't conquer something and make the world better. That is so uncomfortable for a society based on control and, and domination. That's been what progress has been for thousands of years, increasing our ability to, pose, to impose order onto chaos, to domesticate the wild, to conquer the barbarians, to straighten out the rivers and level the mountains and engineer the world, kill the pests, kill the insects, herbicides, insecticides, antibiotics, improvement through control. And it's, and science, this is getting really philosophical, but, but science is essentially a, a, an elaborate system of control, at least, you know, translated into technology. We measure everything, we pin it down, we categorize it, and then we make predictions. Not a bad thing, but we have to recognize its limitations and open up to other ways of engaging the world that aren't based on control, that understand that there is an intelligence beyond ourselves that we can participate in. As we, and this maybe is something to do with the coronation, this initiation that the virus is offering us into the circle of life. Uh, a way, like it's the opposite direction of where we're going toward separating ourselves from the community of life washing our hands all the time, never touching anybody. There was an article a few years ago called Is Excessive Hygiene Making Us Sick? The immune system needs constant input, constant information from the world, from the dirt, from the grime, from other people, from hugs, yes, handshakes, yes. Life does not thrive in isolation, not biologically and certainly not socially. The, the biggest predictor of serious illness is, is not even smoking or drinking, it's loneliness. So this is like, 
you can see how, how big the field that is here that we need to look at all the way from, like you mentioned before, denial of death to the, the paradigm of control um, to official reality, you know, and, and our basic course of civilization toward more and more separation, more and more control. And so here we have a pause that says, do we really want to keep going in this direction? Is the perfect future one in which we never touch each other anymore? You can imagine a dystopia where dating even is online, where it is socially inconceivable that you would ever meet in person and you procreate with sex robots. The sex robot goes to your house and you make your deposit and then it goes to the lab. And like, it's like this, I, I thought I was just in a paranoid fantasy until, until Fauci said handshakes are gonna have to be a thing of the past. I'm like, oh. and I guess part of me still, it's not like I think that that'll never happen, that, that we won't go down the road toward even more separation, more income inequality. I mean, this you know is also an opportunity for disaster capitalism and a gigantic um, gift basket to the banks and corporations. Like we could go any direction though. We could go the opposite direction. And the reason that I'm that I'm not in despondency, although I do go into moments of despondency when I see what's happening, but the reason I'm not in despondency is that. We're not, yeah, we're not being delivered from, we're not being saved from our dystopian fate, but we are being given a choice. We have a chance to reclaim our power to choose individually and collectively what future do we want to live in? Because we're being shown where we were going in stark, extreme relief. So do we want to go that way? Do we want to go or do we want to go to a world where we take care of each other, where we rejoin life, where we're not just in it for ourselves? Do we want to hoard or do, do we want to share? Individually, we're being asked this. Collectively, we're being asked this. That's the, the initiation, the, the coronation that says, this is your chance to step into sovereignty, where you choose. We're not just the victims of the future. But collectively, and we've been the victims of the future, marching along toward, toward uh, more and more extreme plutocracy and, and inequality as if there were no alternative. As your erstwhile leader said, there was no alternative. There is no alternative. And, and now we're maybe awakening to our power to choose what world we would live in um i was thinking before about that perhaps in an essential way conspiracy theories can be derived from our own understanding of or intuition of simple anatomy that our own bodies are run by this invisible force that we can't control that is more significant than the gentle, fragile ego that rests upon this p 
powerful organic system that runs itself governs itself as long as we participate in the procreating and the eating and the not walking off the edge of cliffs you know we are run by an invisible force that's dominant also i imagine by our kind of certainty that there is a dichotomy between what is said publicly and what is said privately by the powerful but when you talk about um how in a sense this is an opportunity for revision for us to look at you know what kind of uh, values do we want to proceed with uh, when this crisis presumably concludes we are at an incredible disadvantage because it's sort of clear clear to me from observing the sort of movements that are clear enough for for me to read them i mean sort of politically and economically and for me they have to be pretty simple for me to read and understand them it's clear to see that the sustenance of the system as you said earlier in your uh, analogy is self-preservation of the system protection of its own immunity the continuation of the systems of dominance that's a prior a priority and i wonder from whence we would derive the collect individual and collective power to challenge such thundering hegemony as it sort of enters now into a like this phase where we are yet more weakened and i i, I don't mean um you know medically or biologically i mean just by the demonstration of how, how much power can be asserted how dependent we are on consuming uh, technology etc yeah i don't have a formula for a revolution uh, but i do think that when things that were invisible become visible to us we do gain a power of choice that we didn't have before and that it is not a revolution like i mean i do think that we're going to see um significant amounts of social disruption um civil unrest uh, people are angry and with good reason you know i'm not asking people not to be angry there's a kind of a righteous fury and indignation boiling under the surface the reason that and it's been here for a long time, been suppressed for a long time, diverted for a long time onto, you know, celebrity news and gender pronoun debates and that kind of thing. Um, but it's it's not going away and it's getting stronger and stronger. Because of inequality, do you think, Charles, because of what's been exposed about inequality that we're not, whilst we're superficially having the same experience on our global lockdown, there are many, many, many different types of lockdown occurring. There are many different types of threat occurring based on like our economic and social positions. And this has been sort of emphasized by this. Yeah. 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 Part of it is inequality, but the anger exists even in people who are in the 1%. And I think it's coming from the inequality is part of a deeper sense of betrayal. The world was supposed to be getting better and better. We were technology and science and reason and the rule of law and democracy. All these things were supposed to capitalism, um, the, the efficiency, you know, all of these things were supposed to deliver us unto utopia. And it looked like it was working 50 years ago. Each generation was better off than the last, or so it seemed. And that 
has not continued. My generation is not better off, certainly not happier, certainly not healthier than my parents' generation, let alone the millennials who can't ever afford their own house anymore. Uh, people are becoming in the Western countries, in the developed so-called countries, more and more miserable, more and more unhappy, even if they're in the 1%. This is the biggest myth that the system works only for the 1%. Nonsense. It doesn't work for the 1% either. If you want to find an actually happy person, you probably have to go to a village in Peru or Afghanistan or something like that. Find some hunter-gatherers somewhere. So the problem with the, with the righteous anger, the rage, the fury, is that it gets diverted onto false enemies and never exercises its true purpose, which is to flush out the root toxins to reveal the truth. That power, the power of anger can reveal the truth. And when the truth comes into the DNA of the culture, then we begin making different decisions. So the best way to defuse the rev revolutionary potential of this anger would be to set up some bad guys to blame for the problems because then we can kill the bad guys or take down the bad guys without changing the system that generates new bad guys. Like I'm not actually even saying there are no conspirators, conspirators or no super powerful people, but why are they so powerful? Is it because they have superhuman powers and they can fly and teleport and read minds? Not really. They're no different than you and than, than you and me, you know. They, they depend on our agreement with them. They depend on our buy-in to certain stories of what's important, what's true, how the world works. And if we stop buying into that, they will have no power. Charles, some of the things you said early in um, your answer there, I, I was struck by how uh, in terms of the rhetoric and almost actually the sort of timbre of what you're saying was comparable to a lot of um, what has become known as alt-right rhetoric. You know, like the sense of like, you are not going to own your house. Like I watched Steve Bannon, who's going to come on this show as a guest actually in over the next few weeks, addressing the Oxford Union. And I must say, it was like 30, 40 minutes before he said anything that I could disagree with. You know, outside, the, the no platformers were chanting, Steve, and Steve Bannon just outlined what happened after the crash in 2008, the decisions that Obama made. And it was only my sort of pre, uh, previous knowledge of what Steve Bannon's political allegiances are and the kind of political projects that he supports and indeed um, you know, creates that gave me a sort of a different lens other than agreement um also when you talk about like you know like contentment and happiness and the sort of systemic betrayal of the narrative of progress which i would say you know like for me and i've not done anything like the kind of research you've done feels like it's just a, a, something that's been um increasing from agriculture through industrialization through the technological age this sort of increasing uh, aggregating aggregation of human life human beings this the dominion over the earth dominion over the people dominion over woman and when you said like um 
you know, you'd have to go to some Peruvian or Nepalese village or find a hunter-gatherer somewhere. I was struck by the... Uh, it resonated with me because of my belief that there are some universal truths, not when it comes down to how individuals might identify, live their lives, express themselves, but when it comes to the way that humanity has evolved, that for many more years than we have lived in urbanized, industrialized cultures, we lived in hunter-gatherer cultures, these are the conditions we've evolved for, this is what our nervous system is set up for, and oughtn't true progress reflect our essential conditions which seem like i'm not suggesting it's saying that there ain't brutality to a hunter-gatherer lifestyle from what i've read and um, it's like you know death is part of the parcel part and parcel of it someone's sick ill old you know then we're gonna have to let them go you know there's a kind of uh, i don't know mercilessness to it but in it's in the acknowledgement of the sacred that seems to be like the sort of the wi-fi of the hunter-gatherer times, this acknowledgement that we're connected to the food we eat, we're connected to the water we drink, we're connected to one another. It seems that it is this vitality precisely that's been lost in the march of centralization, the march of material and technological advance. And it is here that we will find many of the solutions to our problems in a kind of, not reversion, and a continued evolution along the pathway, the inverted commas, intended pathway. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. So as far as what humans have evolved for, there's a big mystery there. I mean, you could say that our, that all cells evolved for single-celled existence. Yet in their DNA uh, were codes that enabled multicellular existence. And I think the same is true on, a, on a, another level for human beings. Yeah, we evolved to live in hunter-gatherer bands. Yet we also have within us the capacities to live in larger collectives and live in a beautiful way. You can see the there's so many futures that are available to us. I, I invoked the image of, of standing at at the end of a road where a hundred paths are radiating out into a hundred different futures. And we can catch a glimpse of a really beautiful future that is not a return to the past, but that resonates with things that we've seen in our lives, like the city. There's an archetype of the city that you catch a little glimpse of sometimes in London, in New York, in Tokyo, where where there's just this ferment of cultural activity where you can find your little tribe, no matter how arcane your interests are, uh, where things are possible that are not possible. I mean, there's a certain excitement about about the city um, that draws young people to it, a place where you can redefine yourself outside of your normal reinforcing circumstances. Like there's, so there's beauty in all of the creations of civilization and technology. And I don't think that our, our, the fulfillment of our destiny would be to abandon those, those gifts. But it is also to bring back in the things that we've excluded, for example, from um, the hunter-gatherer traditional indigenous way of seeing the world. 
we've highly, highly developed along a certain axis of development and neglected so many other ways that human beings can develop and, and, and marginalized those. So there's the development, I mean, for example, Australian Aborigines had tens of thousands of years of development of the technology of dream. Other cultures, the technology of, of psychedelic plants. Other, tech, other cultures, the technology of, of communication with beings of nature. Uh, others, the, the science of human energetics. You know, I'm looking at, at Chinese culture, for example, or India, you know. These have been relegated to the outskirts of reality in a culture that worships quantity. Because these are hard to quantify or impossible to quantify. And science says that if you can't quantify it, if you can't measure it, it's not real. So it's a matter of bringing all that's been excluded back in and socially and politically too. Like who have we excluded and pushed out and what parts of ourselves have we pushed out? Might I make a case as a kind of experiment for the idea that the things that you described about a city as being beautiful and i remember those days i remember enchantment at new york i've not been to tokyo i tried to go and they kicked me out actually when i landed uh london of course i've lived in london more than i've lived anywhere else and i felt that sort of allure and majesty of, of a city but could we a case be made charles that the things that are beautiful about urbanized life are this essential displacements notably the kind of worship of culture itself as a displacement of a loss of our connection to the sacred i mean popular culture is an obvious example what what is being refracted when we adore Jimi hendrix or justin bieber or madonna and uh, there's a a clue in the name of the, the the third one what 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 is being projected and i wonder who benefits mostly from you know set, uh, huge urbanized centralized populations what is what invisible philosophy is embedded in every brick and in a byproduct of that might be a thriving art scene but the intention is this is the best way to corral people <laughs> into industrialized conurbations so you know when i, I as as you said you know, there are limitless potential pathways to utopias and glowing futures and or even just improved civilization. But is there, is there anything that can be said with certainty in this post-structuralist time? Like, for example, hey, look, this is how human beings live for 10,000 years. Why don't we, when we're setting up systems as best as possible, try to replicate them? We know that there can be no sort of uh, mandate in of particular religions or particular sexualities or particular forms of self-expression. So... It's going to require a kind of, you know, as you've suggested, massive tolerance and beyond tolerance, acceptance and inclusivity. But I think that that can only be achieved when we're dealing with a large, you know, perhaps a confederacy of fully autonomous groups that are self-governing as opposed to any kind of centralized governance, even if we're talking like city state as opposed to nation the more people you put together that yes of course there's these opportunities for collaboration and for uh you know coalescence but it seems that the, the the reality we're experiencing now and i know it's not just one thing or the other thing but the reality we're experiencing now is 
everyone's individual freedoms are somewhat inhibited and we're setting up straw man arguments and quarreling over nonsense because beneath the surface we're all being dominated by an invisible i would argue economic ideology uh, about centralizing power centralizing authority yeah yeah i mean i pretty much agree with that you know uh, i i think i don't think we have to ideologically discard the possibility of having cities and things like that but we shouldn't take uh, as inevitable, a continued trend toward greater and greater urbanization or centralization. But we should ask, we should we should put it all on the table, and say, what is the right role of a city? Uh, what do we want to keep about the old normal, and what do we want to let go of? Uh, you know, maybe one thing we want to keep is is some concentrations of population that are not happening because people's land is being taken away from them, not happening because subsidized industrial agriculture is displacing the peasants, not happening because of government policies to destroy local culture, the imposition of global media that replaces uh, traditional storytelling, like not happening because of any of those things, but because there is actually a positive role for Mecca points, for pilgrimage points, for places where you go to have an extraordinary experience that are hosted by those who hold the city. Like it could be, we could return to that conception of a city, which is actually thousands of years old. Cities were originally built around temples. You went there on a pilgrimage. Where we could be in 5,000 years is almost impossible to imagine today. Yeah. Like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, when he came on, said, like, you know, observed the 2% difference that distinguishes us from chimpanzees and postulated what a, you know, a 2% advance, you know, let's call our, ourselves an advancement on chimpanzees just for the sake of this conversation. A, two, a further 2% advance from us might look like the kind of beings that that yeah. that, that, that would um, sort of conjure. So, so I, I accept there is so much rich possibility. Whenever I thought about revolution or serious change, not reform, not like, you know, why don't we edge an inch in the direction of a politician that's slightly different or slightly more tolerable or a nicer gender or color than we used to, you know, like when I thought about real radical change, I've, I never was able to envisage it occurring without cataclysm. Now we've been presented with a cataclysm, which in your uh, article, and, you know, of course, that's commensurate with your work for you know 20 years like that that the, there is an alternative alter ulterior system waiting to realize itself and to some degree being expressed through the organs that are already present um do you ever like in your mind have a little sort of like the board game risk imagine how like okay so what would you do what would be like for if we were starting now what would you propose would you propose people default on their mortgages People refuse to pay their taxes. What do you think? What would be the early, uh, the early moves 
that you would make if you were thinking we want to exempt ourselves from our nation and furthermore to make the question sexier still what do you imagine would be the original the initial response of say let's take for example the american government if communities started to spring up that said hey we're fully autonomous we're not participating which would appeal to both anarchists and libertarians we're not participating in your systems of centralized government anymore we're not paying tax this is who we are you know, like I, I wonder if there could be some agreed upon universal ideologies that could be expressed even through a multitude of religious ideologies, say, or social forms of identification. You know, just a basic template of full democracy, sharing of resources, permaculture, etc. Just basic things, basic, basic self-sustenance. Um, and, you know, and then the next bit of this mad, wonderful fantasy question is what do you reckon would happen if people started doing that stuff? A lot of, a lot of things that... Um on a personal individual level only feel good because you are making yourself special in some way. Like, well, I'm not going to pay my taxes. I'm going to be the, like they, they, if you, if you're the only person doing them, they don't actually change anything, but maybe they make you feel good, uh, make you feel righteous. But if a lot of people do them, then the effect is profound. One of the, um, a few years ago, I concluded that maybe the only revolutionary avenue open to most people in modernized cultures is uh, debt resistance to stop making payments on the mortgages, the credit cards, the student loans, and all the other debts, simply because the system is so tightly leveraged that, that it could not withstand a debt strike and the demand would be a jubilee of some sort, uh, forgiveness of debts, which is, you know, if I mean, as you know, it has historical precedent. Um, it is, in fact, the only way to redress, I mean, to redress inequality right now. Um, and we're also seeing... You know, now I'm starting to question, I'm just thinking out loud here, would that actually bring the system to its knees? Because the government and central banks have unlimited power to prop up the banks who aren't receiving their payments. And then they can, you know, um, confiscate your bank account. Uh, they can garnish your wages. They can make you pay. Uh, by exerting more and more control over your choices of how to spend money, basically. And we're kind of seeing that happen already in this crisis. So the answer is, I don't know. I do see, as I said before, considerable civil unrest on the horizon. Do you? Where, uh, how, why and where yeah. and how? Just because people are so angry and because... Um, the systems that we have in place aren't working. And at some point, but at some point it, and because the authorities are preparing for it. Uh, really? Where do you see that? Well, in the, I'm, I'm most familiar, familiar with the U S uh, there are all these contingency plans for martial law, these quarantine camps, uh, the acquisition of, you know, all this anti-riot gear Oh, shit. Um, the the legal framework for uh, indefinite detention, for example, the Department of Justice just recently uh, asked that courts be allowed to suspend 
proceedings indefinitely in case of, quote, emergency, which means that if you're in jail awaiting trial, you can stay in jail forever if the court says that there's an emergency. These are just like there's hundreds of little data points like this. So, the uh, but again, my brother actually once said that he thinks that things will change when the authorities just get sick of administering it all and they're like, fuck it. We're not even going to, we're not going to try to maintain order anymore. Let's, let's, let's go home. Be, and, and that depends on reaching the part of the, the people in power, the 1%, that actually don't want this to continue either. It requires a spirit of solidarity that we're not going to be taking you down from your wonderful life. It's that life could be so much better for everybody, including the 1%. This is, that's, that's, that's key for me, is that this is not working for the 1%. Yes, and I agree that like moving beyond sort of oppositionalism and contempt is vital for any kind of real progress. And I, I've thought, Charles, while we were speaking, how like those of us that are trying to awaken from the dreams of ourselves and from the dreams of these systems, how crap are we at conjuring up alternative visions that there has been no realistic... Um, alternative presented or at least not one that has captured should we call it the public imagination since the sort of cold war there's been no radical threat to uh, hegemony since then um and you know the more we talk about it the more we sort of recognize wow people like are dissatisfied wherever they are on the in on the social or economic hierarchies uh, how how is it that we're unable to convey with with um any kind of uh, tactility or with any kind of vivacity like the, these visions why is it so difficult well i mean i think it's because we don't have a precedent for it all we know is that this isn't working and we don't want normal to continue. We're done with this. That's why crisis, uh, it's not only scary when, I mean, I've been around the block, you know, from Y2K, which I'm still kind of worried about, to, <laughs> to let 2012, you know, peak oil, financial collapse, like all these things. Like It's like, yeah, I'm scared of it. But, but there's also a part of me that's like, yeah, bring it on. I want to be delivered from the prison that I'm in. And I don't know how to do it. So first, so that's the breakdown of, of what I sometimes call the old story into a place of uncertainty, the unknown, um, a, a dissolving of structures. And we don't know what comes after that until that dissolution has happened. And and a new story can be born in the empty space that is left by the by this disintegration of the old. We can catch glimpses of it, but I don't actually trust anybody who has uh, a complete thorough plan for a perfect society. Because I'm like, that plan is going to smuggle in 
aspects of the old that are invisible to us and that won't become visible until this breakdown sweeps away the, the mental and institutional structures that hold normal. Like we are incapable of actually describing the world that our hearts know is possible. We feel it. We know it's there. It's like walking towards this glow on the horizon. And sometimes we, and, and we see it. Like we know that there is a destination that we're going toward, but we can't see the path there. All we see is maybe one or two steps ahead of us. And then we, we go down into a valley, into a forest, into a thicket, and we can't even see the glow anymore. And we think maybe this, this uh, oppressive reality is all that there is. But then we ascend a crest and we see it again, and it's actually even a little closer. And then we get lost again. It is this knowing that there is somewhere where we are, where we are going and we don't know what it is. It's not technological utopia with flying cars and robot servants and, and you know, mechanical computerized body parts and immortality. That is simply a projection of our current condition that feels kind of forlorn. It's a proxy for what we really want, just as, you know, celebrities are a proxy for the expression of our own greatness that you were talking about before. Yet, they are speaking to something real. And it, it yeah, and, and in the uncertain times ahead of us, the times of disintegration, I think it is important to remember that we are going somewhere, even if the rational mind says there's no evidence for that. We know that we're here for a reason and that life has a plan and that the tendency of life always is toward more life. The tendency of the universe is toward more complexity and that we are here to participate in the coming alive of Earth more and more. That, that's true no matter what. <laughs> I agree with you, absolutely. Although I feel like some people would say that the tendency of the universe is inertia and disintegration and entropy, <laughs> entropy but like a, yeah. you know not yet and not in this bit not near the middle bit we're at the middle right <laughs> um so like um but i i feel like um i was struck by what you were saying um there charles uh, and it's um that how it uh, elides with mark fisher the english philosopher's idea of late capitalism and capitalist realism that we are unable to envisage a reality like that capitalism has established itself as an absolute norm that we that it's horizonless now we can't envisage anything beyond it i also felt like we we won't from rationalism and materialism we will not be able to derive an alternative ideology it is going to take a faith-based leap such as you described a kind of yes initiation reintegration with a the sacred for want of a better word the divine the transcendent that which is beyond rationalism and this is the territory that's so fiercely protected you know particularly in the scientific field you know they loathe that woo-woo stuff. They loathe that flowing feminine. They loathe the idea of even stepping outside of the apparent empiricism of science whilst neglecting 
the way that science is funded and the nature of questions that are asked and the questions that are left unasked and the way that that impedes upon any apparent objectivity. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't think it's, it's actually a dichotomy between the rational and the scientific and on the one hand and on the faith-based and the love-based on the other hand. Uh, it's that we need to access excluded and marginalized ways of knowing and ways of seeing the world and that ultimately these will be validated by quantitative methods but they don't depend on quantitative methods for us to see them in environmentalism like one of the things i i often <laughs> i've long thought is that the whales are really important it's hard until recently it, w it would have been very hard to validate that importance based on metrics, like carbon metrics, for example. Like, okay, yeah, we all love whales, but come on here. The important thing is reducing greenhouse gases. And if we put too much of our energy on to save the whales, you new age hippie, then we're not going to bring those numbers down. But then, but, 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 and so, in that context, you have to make a faith-based, as you were saying, choice. No, we're going to save the whales anyway, even though it goes against reason. Ultimately, though, when you follow that calling of the heart to that, that, that perception of the sacred, then you might actually find out that the whales are important based on these metrics, too, because they dive down, they feed in the deeper waters, they come up to the surface, they eject their fecal plume that then nourishes plankton and coxolithophores, which then um, sink to the bottom after they die uh, and their calcium carbonate goes to the ocean floor and they therefore sequester carbon. And then you're like, ah, oh, okay, now the whales are important. But how did you even begin asking that question? It's because you love the whales. This is what, this is, so this is a, a, an example of the marginalized ways of knowing and relating that we got to bring back in. It's like, and the whales are one thing. What about the prisoners, you know, the people in prisons? What about the homeless? What about the addicts? The rational mind would say, well, you know, like Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, if they starve, that's, that helps the population problem, like that cold, rational mind. But on some level, we know that our society will never, our planet will never heal when people are languishing in prison. I don't know how. When people are homeless, I don't know how. But when the, the most vulnerable people are exploited and, and destroyed, the most vulnerable places are also going to be destroyed. And we will never be whole. That's the way of knowing that we have to follow. Yes, yes. Like I've that the Christian or sort of almost the, the essential Christian idea in many respects that it's the answer is to be found with the poor. Get down with the poor. Get down with the outliers. Like until these things are addressed, the, there can't be any progression. And what's embedded in that simple edict is oneness, service fraternity togetherness um yeah i i wonder um i wonder are you what's your how do you describe your uh, i don't know religious or spiritual position 
Uh, depends who I'm describing it to. Me. <laughs> you and like how many other people are listening to this? If we um, use it as a clip, it could be, I, yeah, like a million. I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite comfortable in, in um, many different uh, religious discourses. Like I could say, yeah, I'm a Christian and I can go into that. And it's true. I'm not like posing as a Christian. And I can say I'm a Taoist. Uh, I'm a Buddhist. But I really don't identify as as any of these, nor do I have an especially deep practice in any spiritual tradition. Um, same as, you know, politically, too, like, you know, in my most of my life, I've identified as a leftist. But right now, the old stories are too small to contain the truth. And we're seeing it. We're seeing the truth radiating out and transcending so many of these identities, traditional religions, like even if you do identify as a Christian or something like that, what that is, is changing. The same uh, arising um, expansion of consciousness is happening within all of our containers, just as much as it's happening outside of our containers. Politically, too, you were saying like Steve Bannon spoke for 40 minutes and you didn't disagree with a word he said for the first 40 minutes. Like, like left is right, up is down. Since when are, are, are the, is the right the ones opposing war and questioning the intelligence services and the so-called left is saying trust, trust our patriots in the intelligence services and the military? Like, who is who? And is it that their roles are being reversed or is it that the old structures can no longer hold the new reality? And that asks us, who are we? What have we taken for granted that is ready to question and maybe to let go of right now? And that that brings us into anything as possible. I think there was a clear moment where the left abandoned working people and the interests of their, let's say, not ethnically indigenous population, but sort of majority populations. They kind of like sort of palpably started to look down on them. And I think masked that disregard with a, kind of uh, overt embrace of sort of uh, identity politics, uh, politics, for example. And I think that was the beginning for me. That was a significant moment in the discrediting of the conventional left over the last 30 years, even like, you know, with uh, even omitting the kind of um, clear theoretical and political changes that happened under Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, where the left became sort of more centrist and more right, you know, but like I've been struck by how right wing populism has become the default voice of the people or to use a more perhaps prescient and chilling word, the folk, you know, and what that might lead to if that, that territory is uh, conceded, you know, yeah. Um, my, my hope is that with the breakdown of existing political parties uh, and the possibility for new parties to arise instantaneously, almost like you don't need all this grassroots organizing over years and decades anymore with the Internet, although that is also the control over information on the Internet is intensifying as well. Uh, but still, um, the possibility for a uh, 
unifying uh, working class movement is present like it never has been in my lifetime. Um, we're already seeing, you know, the, like little hints of of wildcat strikes and maybe even general strikes that come from the same thing that we were talking about before this this instinctive rejection of normalcy and 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 just this recognition that that normal is intolerable the world that has been given to us to live in isn't supposed to be like this it, and it can be so much more beautiful and 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 that's not even that far away there's so much abundance on in this world so much human wealth you know and we're in this artificial scarcity where where 5 million children a year die of hunger and 40% of all food is wasted where there are you know, half a million or a million homeless in the U.S. and tens of millions of vacant housing units where the deepest needs for community and togetherness and to look into each other's eyes and know your story and know you, the need for intimacy, the need for authenticity. These are not being limited by some law of the universe. It's purely a construction. And we know no matter what we're told, we know that this wealth is available to us and it's not that far away. Yes. It's Those empty houses and the, that sort of wasted food could be regarded as a kind of unconscious sacrament to a, an inv invisible zeal, an invisible religious ideology, an economic and political ideology that requires sacrifice, but is uh, more of a construct than any pagan religion might be that honored and revered resources whether that's the resources that are hunted or the plants that are eaten and regarded therefore as part of some union it's interesting it's interesting to see how the sort of uh, dogma of scientism replaces the orthodoxy of religion that it necessarily re replaced and rightly sort of shot down from in, in the enlightenment but how we continue to it seems repeat templates of dominance and dogma oh, yeah. in, in, in these it's, it's the same so, science is very much a religion you know it, it has these uh, invisible entities that control everything called, you know, gravity, force. Um, it has um, little devils that can make you sick that you can't see unless you have a sacred instrument to look at them. Uh, otherwise, you have to take the word of the priests that they even exist. Those are called bacteria and viruses. It has um, uh, a, a, a training ordeal for the priests called graduate school. And they speak a different language that normal people, lay people can't understand. We even say lay people, you know, in contrast to scientists. Uh, there's schisms within scientists. There's heretics. There's excommunication. You get your funding cut off. There are preachers who preach the gospel to the masses. There's the um, system for indoctrinating youth. Um, there are metaphysical beliefs. There, there are about the nature of reality. There, there's an origin story called the Big Bang. Um, there are rituals that are done 
to um, divinatory rituals to ascertain what is true. Those are called experiments. Like the whole thing is a religion, which doesn't mean that it is bad or wrong. That is That would only be the case if you accept science's rendition of what religion is as a term of disparagement. But you can, then you can ask, what aspects of truth does this particular religion reveal? Yeah. And what does it obscure? Yeah. Yeah. And where does... It's a very powerful one. It reveals a lot. Where does it falter? Where does it halt? Where do its instruments become blunt? What, what levels and layers of reality are inaccessible to that particular uh, doctrine. I once uh, said, again, um, I was reading back the transcript of my conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and it was interesting because, you know, like a conversation like this, I'm mostly sort of learning to articulate what I already believe or enhancing and getting edification and learning. Oh, this is the general way I see the world, and now I'm being furnished with more information. But with Neil deGrasse Tyson, there's a kind of, um, who I admire very much, uh, like there's a sort of like, you know, I disagree with him on like so much. And I remember I said like about you know that in the Bhagavad Gita and Vedic texts I said acting like I've read a whole bunch of them there are like a deep cosmological and universal truths expressed that go beyond the uh, the measurements and metrics as we can now appreciate and verify that data but like uh, nonetheless there's like deep truths about them like it seems like they're describing the, the subparticular world and the and this seems like they're describing the cosmos and he said yeah but you couldn't use the Bhagavad Gita to make an airplane <laughs> that would work right you know and uh, again for me this reveals like the sort of you know they of course bloody hell materialism has a place of course this absolute practical okay we can see how these molecules behave we can see how this energy behaves we can see how this behaves and we can use this to manage the material world but the claim that this is happening objectively is bogus because it's all happening in the service of a bigger ideal like unless that question unless this discourse or this course of action and inquiry leads at some point to profit you can fuck it off if it challenges the status quo it will be shut down so that the objectivity is gone and yeah I think some thing that you said earlier Charles was that like that what needs to happen is a, a synthesis and acceptance that there is like you know this is the domain of the material and the empirical here is the you know as you said the 10,000 years of experimentation in the laboratories of the mind conducted by the indigenous people of Australia and to exclude them in favor of one sort of in, uh, what do I want to say spiritually colonizing narrative like this is the way this is how we we, we create nations we create economies we create these systems that's um we can see where it's heading we can see where we are for let yeah. alone where it's heading yeah. yeah yeah it's true you can't use the bhagavad gita to gita to make an airplane and there are things this is you know I, I was educated at yale as you said before i would never call myself a mathematician by any means or even really an academic philosopher but anyway you know i was pretty sure when i left university and went to live in Taiwan that I had been educated in the the highest expression of human uh, knowledge that had ever existed and that that I knew better than these people in this other country that were still very superstitious. But 
I experienced things there that were blatantly impossible according to my education. And I thought, okay, I could maybe explain them away, this experience with Chinese medicine, this experience with Qigong, uh, these people, you know, reporting this, 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 this Taoist shaman who is carrying like a red hot brazier in his hands, you know, his whole body shaking, not getting burned, like whatever, all these, these things. I could maybe explain them away as some kind of trick, you know, as some kind of delusion. But I'm like, to do that would be to impose the same colonial mindset um, epistemologically as is being imposed economically and culturally everywhere else, where the, the economic and cultural aspect of it is we know how to live better than you. You should be like us. And the epistemological aspect is we know what truth is. We know what knowledge is. We know how to know better than you. You should be more like us. So like walking in there thinking I know more than they do when, yeah, they couldn't build an airplane using traditional Chinese Taoist science, but I couldn't, uh, you know, heal a broken bone in, in two weeks or, um, you know, make somebody break into a sweat by just touching them or, um, you know, throw needles through panes of window glass from 10 feet away or, you know, the things that, that some of these Qigong masters can do. Like you see it with your bare eyes, you know, and it's like, okay, either I can cling really tightly to what I thought was real or I can accept that maybe, just maybe, I didn't know as much as I thought I did. <laughs> so, so it's yeah, it's not that it's not that science can't create miracles. What Neil deGrasse Tyson would say if I said to him, "Science is a religion," he'd be like, "No, no, no." Okay, maybe he wouldn't say this, but this is what I've heard from scientists. No, 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 no. It's not a religion because we're actually testing our knowledge against reality. But that itself is it 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 embodies an item of dogma which says that the test that you perform does not affect the reality that's out there that says that reality is separate from ourselves that our questions do not change what is being questioned another viewpoint is that reality is a relationship no it's not necessarily that the new age principle that our thoughts create reality but there's an intimate connection between inner and outer and that we maybe, and this maybe can go all the way back to the beginning of the conversation with, with COVID-19, where the, the scientifically immersed mind, the mind of separation, wants to say, okay, there's a truth out there, there's a reality out there, and I want to find out what it is. I want to find out which of these stories is true. But what if that is a surrender of our fundamental power to choose what world we will live in. It's not to say that we can make up reality, make up the world, but it's to say that truth is a relationship, that we can choose maybe from a menu of possibilities, a menu of realities. And how do we make that choice? And who do we become? This is how I orient in this, this whirlwind of conflicting narratives. I'm like, who do I become when I sit in this narrative? I can listen to David Icke, okay, and take that on. 
What is the world like from this seat? And what do I become? And is this really who I am? And then I can go into Steve Bannon's worldview and I can go into, you know, a Marxist worldview. Who do I become in each of these? And to measure that according to what I know to be the, the, the next expression of my soul's journey. That's how to walk that invisible path from here to that glow on the horizon that we, that we can see in the distance. All right, Charles. That was uh, very beautifully handled as a narrative. I don't think we're going to top that as a climax and conclusion to our most recent conversation. It's so beautiful to speak with you. I, I, I really wanted to get your sort of further insights on that article that I would recommend that anybody who hasn't read yet read. It's at the uh, link is in the description, so to check it out. And I'm really grateful to you. And I really love your work. I love the way you think and communicate. And uh, I hope we get an opportunity to talk and collaborate uh, it going forward. Yeah. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it too. I feel like we kind of were all over the map here, but... Um... Anyway, uh, there's no fun. bloody map. It's so lovely to talk to you, Charles. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Charles Eisenstein. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. You can tag me at Russell Brand or at Rusty Rockets for Twitter and all of that. Sign up to my new mail list. It's a lot of good stuff. Oh, so, so like, a lot of good things on there at Russell Brand. Get mailing lists and like good videos. And if the world comes back, you'll know first when I'm traveling around. Have a little listen to some old podcasts like D Douglas Rushkoff. He's a pretty brilliant man. Or why don't you listen to something a bit funny like Frankie Boyle? What about that? Go and listen to that. Or if you fancy listening to Dear Khan, do. Oh, here's my cat. All right. Well, anyway, look, I love you. I'm going now. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand from Luminary Media. <laughs>